Thank you, Luke, and thank you uh, to the band for your ministry to us today. And I want to thank all of you for coming here. I, I'm very aware that uh, to ask any man to give up their Saturday, at least most of it, is a big ask. That, that all of you are here at some personal sacrifice to yourself, whether it be a family sacrifice, a work sacrifice, a, just a day off. Uh, there's other things that you could be doing. So thank you for coming and spending the time with us. Uh, I trust that as we open God's word together today and we worship and we, we mix and mingle with one another and share our stories, uh, that this will be a good use of your day, that you will go back to whatever life it is that you put aside for, for these hours and that God will have spoken to you in some way that will better equip you or, or fuel you so that you will be able to do the things that God has called you to do. Now, before we get into today's sermon or this morning's sermon, I, I have to ask the question and then answer it. Why host a conference called Spectacular Failure? Like, are we not setting ourselves up for failure if we're hosting a conference called Spectacular Failure? Like, what is our goal here? What are we hoping to do? Well, the answer to that is really in the, the subtitle of the conference, which is this, that we want to encourage men in the grace of God. And in order to do that, we have to remind ourselves that we all fall short. What exactly do we mean when we say we want to encourage men in the grace of God? There is a time and there is a place to challenge men to grow up to smarten up, to do better, to, to act like men. And a lot of men's conferences take exactly this approach. Uh, they point out that we're falling short and say, therefore, do better. And I, and I do think that there is a time and a place for that. I'm not, I'm not saying that those conferences are bad or they don't have their place. We Men in Canada today do need, from time to time, to hear from God's word that there's more required of us. There's more demanded of us. It's far too easy for men today in this part of the world to act like boys. That's true. However, that's not the focus of today. Uh, that's not our goal today. Today, we want to take the opposite approach, and really these two things have to go together. Today, we want to encourage men in the grace of God. Of course you're failing. Of course I'm failing. And what we're going to see is men have been failing for a really long time. You see, we all, every one of us, every one of us in this room, every man who has ever existed except for the Lord Jesus Christ has fallen short, fallen far short of God's perfect standard. We are all failing in one way or another. So let's just admit that at the front end of, of today before we get to the grace. You see, the gospel requires us to acknowledge this fact. The gospel forces us to admit our weaknesses. The gospel requires us to recognize that we cannot please God in our own strength, that, that we've fallen short. We cannot come to Christ until we recognize our need, until we acknowledge at least before God, but probably before at least one other man, that we have fallen short, that we have sinned, that we have failed. Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. What does that mean? Well, if you're poor in, in your bank account, it means you can't buy anything. 
If you're poor in spirit, it means that you acknowledge you have absolutely nothing to offer God. You, you can't go to God and say, you know, I, I know that I'm mostly a train wreck, but I do have this. No, poor in spirit, you come to God and say, I've got nothing. I am just entirely in need. Now, it can be so paralyzing to teach men the gospel, tell them that they're weak, get them to agree with you that they are weak, only to send them out and tell them that they need to be strong. Doesn't work. See, the beginning of the gospel is this. You've failed. You've sinned. You deserve to die. But the gospel continues. Jesus did not fail. He, he did not sin, not even once, not even in a thought or a feeling. And he did not deserve to die. But he died in our place so that we have, we have nothing that we need to bring. Jesus paid it all. And the gospel promises us that our failures, our sin, our weakness, our brokenness has been nailed to the cross. Our sin is totally paid for, and we have died with Christ. And so now we live for Christ. And that's so much different than acknowledge that you're weak, acknowledge that you're a sinner, now go out and do better. That's one message. It's not the one that we want you to go from today. The message that we want you to hear today is, of course you failed, but Christ has not failed. Now, in all of your failure and brokenness and weakness, in the power of God, do what you can to live for Christ. And you're not going to do it perfectly. You're still going to stumble and fall and trip and fail. You were a total failure, but now, if you belong to Christ, you're a spectacular failure. See, that's an oxymoron. Spectacular is a positive word. Failure is a negative word. We still fail, but by God's grace, he turns our failure into something useful. He says, I, I can work with that. And so we are spectacular failures, weak but redeemed, broken but useful. So we can get busy, not because we're perfect, but because we belong to Christ. Would you pray with me? And then we'll take a look at this morning's text. Lord, I pray for the men gathered here. I pray that today would be a blessing, that you would minister to each man according to his unique need uh, by your word through your Holy Spirit. Uh, use me, use Steve, use the music, use all the men gathered here together in the conversations we have uh, to remind us that we've been purchased, we've been saved. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. As I already said, men as a group have been failing for a very long time. Uh, in fact, we've been failing for as long as there has been something called a man. Uh, see, the first man was the climax, the pinnacle, the best of God's creative genius, and then he totally failed. And we've been struggling ever since. Uh, would you open your Bibles to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, maybe, uh, yeah, Tom's going to hand some out. We're going to be taking a look at the, the Bible quite a lot today. 
So Genesis 1, it should be on page 1 or page 2 of your Bibles. We're going to look at verses 26 to 31. Because in order to understand how we can be spectacular failures as men, I think it's helpful to go back to the very beginning and figure out, well, what does it mean to be a man? And what did the first man do and not do? So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. We're going to hopscotch through Genesis. Uh, we're going to look at Adam and then Noah and then Abraham and some of Abraham's family to see how this manhood project got started and how God has used and transformed men who failed in order to save the world. So let's start with the first man. Uh, we're in creation week here where God is going to declare what he desires to do by creating man in the first place. So you have uh, Genesis 1 verse 26. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful. Multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, just to go over this really quickly, this, this tells us about what man was created to be and to do. To be. God, God created us, men, to reflect his image. We were created in the image of God. Now, that has a lot of implications that, that merits a sermon in and of itself. But really what that means at its core is that we were to represent God in the created world. Uh, that's, that's a huge task. It's a huge honor that the creator of the universe would create us and say, I want you to represent me. I want you to, to be my ambassador in creation, to be my vice regent, to be the, the king of the world. And then God blessed man. And then God called us to do some certain things. And he said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Yes, that's, that's a command to have sex and a lot of it. And to have children and to raise them and to spread out over the face of the earth. And the second thing he called us to do is to have dominion, us and our posterity, our children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren. I want you to be in charge. I give you dominion over the birds of the sky and the fish in the sea and the animals on land. Have dominion, rule. Be in charge. And be benevolent in your dominion then he gave us plenty to eat every seed bearing uh, plant over the face of the earth he says just eat eat as much as you want it's yours we're told that everything was very good 
if we continue reading, we find out that God gave Adam one rule. You can, you rule this, you fill the earth, yeah, I make you a helpmate. So he, he created a, a woman to, to help him to, to do this. I mean, you can't have sex and have children without a woman. And she was to help him to have dominion, to fill the earth. And so the two together uh, were to, to take care of God's creation. Everything was very good. And God gave, right before he created the woman, he gave one rule to the man. And he said to the man, I I want you, you can have everything to eat and you can have dominion. Whatever you do, though, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Adam then was given one rule. It's not hard, is it? Keep one rule. You can eat anything on the earth except that tree. He was given one woman. And he was given the whole earth to rule and to enjoy Adam was also given nakedness. We see that at the end of chapter 2. And sex, as I said. And just take a look there at verse, chapter 2, verse 23. When he first sets uh, his eyes on Eve, or the woman at this point, he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He was even given poetry. The very first words that a man ever uttered was poetry. And he kind of set us up for failure there, didn't he? How many of our wives wish that we would talk to them like this? You're bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And he was in love. He just said, look, you're my equal and we're going to do this thing together. Indeed. This whole manhood project started off very good, didn't it? If only we could have stayed in that place. But then they sinned. Eve was deceived by the serpent. She took the fruit, the one fruit that God said don't eat. She took it, she ate it, she gave it to her husband who was there, who failed to teach her the law properly, who failed to lead her in her time of weakness and deception. And he followed her and he ate. We know the rest of the story. Adam broke the one rule by following the one woman, and thereby he lost the whole world. Nakedness was gone. Sex became abundantly more complicated. Poetry turned into grunting. And then he died. This is what God said to the man because he had failed to keep the one rule. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 17. To Adam, God said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Work was supposed to be a joy, a pleasure. We were to subdue and have dominion over a world that would be working with us and for us. But the curse is now work is going to be hard. How many of you work hard at your job? How many of you at the end of the day, it just just feels so depleting? I mean, you have your good days too, but work is now going to be hard. It's going to be hard to provide for our families. It used to be just pick a fruit, pick a plant, eat, eat, 
have dominion, but now it's going to be hard. And then at the end of it all, you work hard day in and day out, week after week, month after month, year after year, for decades. If you're lucky, you might put a little money aside for, for some kind of a retirement, but that's kind of good but useless because at the end of that, you die. Adam was a spectacular failure. He introduced death when God had given life and abundance. And yet, take a look at the faith that Adam had. Here he had just been cursed with hard work and death, and this is how Adam responds. Take a look at verse 20 of chapter 3. The man, having heard that he's going to have to work hard and that he's ultimately going to die and return to the dust, he looks past God and sees his wife. The woman responsible for this whole sin project in the first place, obviously the buck stops with him because he was the leader who failed to lead. But she's the one that he followed, and he looks at her and he says, I'm going to name you Death because you're a deadly woman? No. He names his wife's name life. That's what Eve means, life. Because she was the mother of all the living. What do you mean she's the mother of all the living? She's the, the mother of everyone who's going to be born into this world, have to work hard, and then die. Well, Adam had heard something that God had said, that the son of the woman would stomp on the head of the serpent. And he had faith. In spite of all the curse and all the death, he says, God's going to redeem this, and I believe that, so I'm going to call you life. And by that faith comes God's grace. You see, God could have, should have, wiped out the human race, but he didn't. From Adam came Seth. From Seth, after many generations, came Enoch and then Lamech. Ultimately, we get to Noah, so let's take a look at Noah. Open your Bibles, just go forward to Genesis 6, verses 5 to 8. Genesis 6, 5 to 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his, the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I shall blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You know, what these verses remind us of is this, that every man from Adam to Noah was a total and absolute failure. Every man was filled with wickedness and sin. Every man was displeasing to God. And God looked down and he says, I can't put up with it anymore. All of these men, every inclination of their heart, every thought in their head is evil continually. And I regret that I ever did this. I regret that I ever made man in the first place. Nevertheless, verse 8, God didn't wipe everybody out. And humanity was given a fresh start. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why was that? Well, I'll tell you, it's not that he was any less wicked than every other man. It's that God needed to use someone. And so he says, well, I'll, I'll set my favor on him. I will empower him to have faith so that I don't have to wipe out the human race. So 
what does God do? He comes to Noah and he says, look, I want you to build for me a, an ark, a big boat. I want, I'm going to send animals to you. And you're going to put them in your boat and I'm going to destroy the world by, by flood. And Noah believed him. And, and Noah got to work. And Noah built that ark. And Noah, Noah made all of the preparations. And he preached the gospel. And he, and he brought the animals into the ark. And then the flood came. And, and we see even there sort of this, this shadow of what Adam was created to be and to do. What, here, here's Noah having dominion within this boat over the animal kingdom, all that was left. And so in some lingering way, Noah is doing that which Adam was created to do, to have crea- dominion over God's creation. Now flip forward to chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. After the flood was over... I want you to hear the echoes of Genesis chapter 1, right? This is truly a fresh start for men. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, now I give you everything. You see the the similarities there to what God had commissioned Adam to be and to do. Be fruitful and multiply. That's exactly the same. Fill the earth. We're starting over. You're a second Adam. Now, the dominion that Adam was supposed to enjoy was supposed to be a benevolent, peaceful dominion, but now we see that although Noah and his sons will have dominion, authority over the animal kingdom, it's no longer that that godly dominion, but there will be fear and dread in the heart of an animal toward their human overlords. So we still retain our control, our authority, but now it's been perverted and twisted. But, But there's still a shadow of the very thing that God created Adam to be and to do. And then thirdly, we see here that just as God had given Adam all of the plants to eat now, he gives Noah meat to eat. So you ever wonder why you can have wing night as men? It's because of the flood. Because God started over. He says, well, it didn't work the first time. Now you can, you can eat not just the plants, but also the meat. Just as Noah was a second Adam, with, with the promise of a new beginning... Although it's not as bright as the beginning we had with Adam, uh, he also, within just a very short amount of time, puts humanity through a second fall. Just as Adam was in a garden, and he picked a fruit, and he sinned when he ate it because God had told him not to. And then remember, he was naked, and God put clothes on him. So take a look at what happens with Noah. Just go over to chapter 9, verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil. And he planted a vineyard, a garden. And he drank, wine, uh, drank of the wine to pick the grapes, ferment them, squeeze them. And he drank of that fruit of the vine. And he became drunk. And he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Cain, and saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, walked backward, covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's 
nakedness. Now this whole motif of nakedness is important. We were created without clothes because we, we weren't ashamed of anything. When Noah sinned and got drunk, he forgot that he ought to be ashamed of the sin that was in his life. So he disrobed. Now I know that that's the motif. That might not have been what was going through his head. But that's the symbolism. He took his clothes off as if to go back to a pre-shame existence. But it was shameful for his sons to see him naked. Because he had reason to be ashamed. So therefore it's no longer right and acceptable for him to be naked. And just as God clothed Adam and Eve, so the sons of Noah walk backward and they cover his shame and his nakedness. This is a second fall. And the point that God is making to us here is although we've started over and although we've started this whole manhood project again, and although we have high hopes for Noah, within Noah's own lifetime we're exactly back to Genesis 3. No further ahead. Noah was a spectacular failure. But let us not forget the faith of Noah. He was obedient to God, wasn't he? God says, I want you to build this big boat out in the middle of nowhere. And Noah Noah could have said, but I've never even seen it rain. Doesn't matter. How are you going to wipe out the whole earth? Doesn't matter. Just do what I tell you. He, He did what God asked him to do. He exercised by the things that he did a faith in God. And by that faith, God's grace was poured out. And God did not wipe out the human race, though he could have. And he should have. He didn't. And from Noah came Shem, and ultimately, down through the generations, Peleg, Terah, and Abraham. Now, this pattern could keep going on forever. God could continually give us fresh starts, And he could say, let's try this again. Let's try this again. Let's try this again. And we would continue to fail over and over and over again. And we would be like Adam and Noah and everyone else. And so God says, like, three strikes and you're out. We can't afford three strikes here. So strike one with Adam, strike two with Noah. And with Abraham, God says, take your base. He walks him. Take a look at Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. God chose a man for himself and then instead of saying I want you to do some things for me God says I'm going to do some things for you whether you deserve it or not. I can't count on you Abraham. You're just as corrupt as Noah and Adam before you. So if we're going to start this over if we're ever going to get men out of the mess they've put themselves in it, it can't be put on the shoulders of a man. And so what we're about to read is the great hinge in the Bible between the failure of humanity and the promise of God. This is is the hinge point where God says, okay, you obviously are going to fail, so I've got to do some things for you. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you can be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Apart from this 
imperative at the beginning. Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And, and by implication, we find out the land that I will give you, though you don't deserve it. So leave this place, this plot of desert, and I'm going to take you to a land that's flowing with milk and honey, and I'm going to give it to you. Totally unmerited. Apart from that gift and the, the need for, for Abraham to go from A to B to take and claim that gift, who's the active one here? It's God. God makes a series of unconditional promises to Abram. He says, I'll make of you a great nation. He says, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What does Abraham do or have to do in order for God to fulfill these promises? Absolutely nothing. See, these promises are based on God's promise, not on Abraham's performance. They're based on God's character, not on Abram's character. They're based on God's grace and not on Ad or Abram's works. You see here the dynamic of the gospel. Everything that we have that we get to hold on to and keep, anything worth having is given to us not because we've earned it, not because we, we've stopped short of spectacular failure, but it's because God says, I'm going to give it to you whether you deserve it or not. And, and that's what he says to Abram. And that's a very good thing. Because predictably, it's not very long before Abram fails in big ways. He sells his wife into a harem in Egypt just to save his own life and his possessions. He says, when we go in there, they're going to see that I'm rich. They're going to see that you're beautiful. They're going to want to have you, so just go. That's sin. There's no, there's no way around that. If, if we did that to our wives, that's total sin. He conceived a son with his wife's servant girl. Now, his intentions were good. He, he had believed God's promise, but that wasn't God's means, and he took it into his own hands. And then, as if he hadn't learned enough, he sells his wife into a second harem. I mean, that's a recurring pattern you don't want to have in your life, selling your wife into multiple harems. And Abraham did it. And this was the man that God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a blessing. And, and if anyone curses you, I will curse them. You know, his posterity didn't do much better like his children. Isaac ha played favorites with Esau. Isaac had a favorite son. That, that's sin. It's uh, often unavoidable, I've been told, but it's nevertheless not right. And then Jacob, not Isaac's son, he, he was a real work, of a piece of work. He deceived his father. He stole his brother's birthright. He stole his brother's blessing. He cheated his father-in-law out of his riches. He lied to his brother while in the middle of a tense reconciliation. He's like, yeah, yeah, brother, I'll catch up with you. And, and just the night before, uh, this is after many decades after he had stolen thing, uh, Esau's blessing and birthright, they finally reconcile, and Jacob says, he's going to kill me. And Esau is just gracious doesn't hold a grudge. He says, let's, let's live together. I'll meet you at such and such a place. And Jacob's like, yeah, that sounds great. And he never goes. 
He lies to the brother a second time in the middle of his reconciliation with that brother. He's a fourfold polygamist. He's got two wives and two concubines. And no, God never, ever uh, approved of polygamy. He's, God has always been in favor of monogamy. One man, one woman, as Jesus said. He has a favorite wife. If you're going to be polygamous, at least share the love. He was very open about the fact that he had a favorite wife. He had a favorite son from his favorite wife. And, and, and that caused all kinds of problem in the family. He loved Rachel and Joseph more than his other wives and his other sons. And then Jacob's son Judah. I'm, I'm tracing a line that the Bible traces. Judah, who becomes really important for salvation history, uh, sleeps with a prostitute, finds out that the prostitute is actually his daughter-in-law, and says, oh, I was going to burn my daughter-in-law to death because she conceived out of wedlock, but oops, it's mine, so you don't have to die. Indeed, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah are all total failures. Nevertheless, let's also take a look at the faith in the lives of these men. And this is a faith that God gifted them to have. Abraham believed God at his word, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't as though Abraham said, well, I need to now live up to these promises. He just believed God. I will have as many descendants as the stars in the sky. And God says, that's good enough for me. You are right in my eyes no matter what. Isaac blessed Jacob with the blessing of Abraham. He thought it was Esau, but Isaac too believed in the promise that God had given to Abraham to do all of these great things. And he passed that blessing on. He knew that he had received those same promises from his father. And though he thought he was passing those promises on to Esau, he passed them on to Jacob, who was deceiving his father at the time. But the point is, Isaac believed in the promises that God had given to his father Abram. And Jacob, he was a rascal. He, he was a cheat. He was a supplanter, a deceiver. He looked after himself before anybody else. He was a terrible brother. And yet, it's very commendable that Jacob wanted the blessing. Because it means he also believed that God had made some amazing promises to his granddad. Abram and to his father Isaac and now he wanted it and Esau by contrast though he was a pretty nice guy didn't want it that badly and he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup and he wasn't as interested in the promises of God and Judah though he conceived with a prostitute who turned out to be his daughter-in-law he also later in Genesis repented of his sin and eventually offered his life as a ransom for Benjamin says, Dad, my life is a surety for Benjamin's life. And before I will allow the Egyptians to keep Benjamin, I'll tell them they can have me. He's very Christ-like, ready to give himself for the life of his brother. And so God poured out his grace in this family, and he did not wipe out the human race. In fact, this very dysfunctional family, and it only gets worse, 
this very dysfunctional family is the means by which God decided to save the world. That's amazing. God could have used a family that was a little less rough around the edges, but he didn't. He says, I want to use this, this total mess of a family to display my abundant grace and save the world. How did he do it? Well, this is the family of Jesus Christ. And you know, that's what the Bible is. It, it's a story of the family of Jesus Christ from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah to David to Jesus. And, and so as you're reading through the Old Testament, if you're wondering, well, wow, how could God ever approve of such things? He, he disapproves of most of what the people do in the Old Testament. And yet, in every generation, He pours out His grace to get us from Adam to Jesus so that we could be saved, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the son of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and Judah's son by the prostitute, his daughter-in-law, Perez. And that son becomes a link in the messianic chain from Adam to Jesus Christ. And so it's through this messed up, dysfunctional family that God keeps his promises to Abraham. It's not based on Abraham's merits or his good works. It's not based on the good works of his family, his children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren, but on the perfect sacrifice of the son of Abraham to pay for all of Abraham's spectacular failures. And all of the spectacular fam failures of Adam and Noah and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and Perez and me. And you. Anyone here conceive a child with a prostitute who turned out to be their daughter-in-law? Probably not. Maybe. But Judah did. Anyone here sell their wife into two harems? Anyone here steal the inheritance from their siblings? And yet, through all of these men who did all of these awful things, God poured out His grace and poured out His blessing. And God has kept His promises to Abraham by grace. You see, each of us and each of our families is totally dysfunctional to various degrees. Some families have got a little bit more together than other families, but you don't have to go far back to realize that we are all just struggling through life. Therefore, if God can use Abraham and his family, he can use us. There's nothing that we could do that would make us unuseful to God. Now, maybe for a season, maybe we got to get some things together for a season. We should just step out for a season because, well, you know, it probably wouldn't be good for me or anyone else if I was involved in this at this time. And yet, God doesn't throw us away. So what is it that you've done? What is your greatest shame? What is your deepest, darkest sin? It doesn't disqualify you. It doesn't rob you of the blessing. It becomes a part of the story of God's grace in your life. And that's very different, isn't it? 
them be better, do better, be stronger. And we are not giving ourselves permission to sin. Sin has painful consequences, and every one of us knows that, that sin has consequences not just for us, but as men for, for our families and for, for the people under our authority, either at work or in the church or in some community group definitely our wives and our children, our grandchildren. Sin has nasty consequences. So, so this is not permission to sin. Sin is always painful. It never, ever delivers on what it promises. But let us not be paralyzed by our own failures or the dysfunction of our own families. We may be a total failure in life, but by God's grace, we can be transformed into spectacular failures, useful for Christ and his kingdom. Take heart, men. No matter what you've done, God can still use you. No matter how messed up your family is, God can still use your family. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that Men have been failing since the first man, and yet that hasn't stopped you. you. You weren't snookered. You found a way to use men in spite of men so you can use us in spite of us. I pray that you would protect us from our own weaknesses of flesh, that our own sinful desires. Protect us. Strengthen us when we're weak, but also remind us that it's in our weakness that we're made strong. Because it's not our strength. It's not our merit. It's not our righteousness. Uh, all we can be at best is a trophy of grace. So help each man here to reflect in on his life. Where, where have each of us failed? And how can we use those failures to showcase your brilliant grace at work in our life? And then we will truly be ambassadors for Christ, for the gospel, and for his kingdom because we don't need to earn or merit anything. All we need to do is recognize, publicly so, our poverty of spirit. Bless these men. In Jesus' name.